You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Who wrote it during the Reformation? Great hymn, great truth. It's good to be back with you. I know some of you thought that I retired. I didn't retire, um, although I thought about it. Um, wanted to just show you this before we pray, before we go to the Word. Um, most of you know that we have been partnering with a company called The Seed Company, which basically makes its aim to provide the Scripture or part of the Scripture to every tribe and tongue in the world. And they do it better than anyone else now, and they do it faster than anyone else now. And we partnered with them to do the Gospel of Matthew and the Book of Acts. And, um, and, and they're done. And here they are. Um, so... This is, uh, if you want to see this, this, these are a people group in Western China that we, uh, we didn't do everything, but we partnered with another church and did, uh, I think, a lot of the book of Acts and most of Matthew, if I'm not mistaken. But we did, those are pretty big chunks of scripture that now a people that did not have the word of God has the word of God. They have the story of the gospel. They have the story of the church because of you guys. And that is awesome. So we're excited about that. And it just reminds me, y'all, um, this building God, it's cold today. The air conditioning was broke last week. Glad there's nice chairs for you guys. Glad we got speakers. This is not the church. The church is sitting inside this building. Um, and it's not just here. It's across the world. And it's just simply God's people filled with God's spirit coming around to hear God's word so that we worship God's son. That's the church, wherever it is, outside, inside, rain, shine, air conditioned, unair conditioned. All people groups who have professed the name of Jesus. And it's just a good reminder because we are very fortunate to have like 7,000 copies of this on our phone. And we have, we, every week we tell you, take one out of the seat in front of you and take it home. You can have it. And these people have not even had it until now. And so it's just awesome to know and see and be part of that. So let me pray and then we'll jump into a sermon that hopefully you guys will understand. We'll see. Um, <laughs> Father, I thank you for your word. It is true. It is good. It is uh, what revealed uh, you, you to our hearts. We know your heart. We know uh, the story of the world. We know how it ends because of your word. And so we're thankful for that. I pray for this people group that we have come along. They gathered earlier today. They, they worshiped Christ this morning when we were sleeping. But uh, they are our brothers and they are our sisters. And man, what a privilege to give just a, a few resources of what we have so that they can have the scripture. That's, thank you for the generosity of your people. Um, I pray as we open Daniel that you just, Lord, you know my prayer for this text. It's a, it's a doozy. Um, I, I need grace. I need help. Um, I need clarity. You want your people to understand your word more than I ever do. So I just pray you'll help me. Help me to be clear and accurate and true, but at the same time, it, uh, Lord, this is your word that changes people, and this is your word that builds your church, and so do it. Despite me, do it uh, for the glory of, of Jesus, our Savior, uh, the one who with one little word shall fell our enemy. That's awesome. So we pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks. You guys have a seat. I haven't preached in four weeks, so I'm going to be moving around the stage pretty quickly today. Uh, I've had a couple cups of coffee, so I'm ready to go. Um, back in 1985, the world was introduced to a time-traveling DeLorean, right? Great movie. Marty McFly accidentally gets sent back into 1955 in his, not his, but Doc Brown's time-traveling DeLorean and has a huge problem, right? When he gets there, you know the story. This, this puppy only runs on plutonium. They don't have plutonium in 1955. And he needs precisely 1.21 gigawatts, right, of electricity to get back to the future. 
And the problem is, there's only one thing in 1955 that is capable of producing that much electricity. What is it? No, it's a bolt of lightning, if you know the movie. Not lightning, it's a bolt of lightning. <laughs> bolt of lightning, right? And the problem with the bolt of lightning is you never know where or when one's going to hit. But ah, Marty McFly knows. He knows that the clock tower at precisely 10.04 that Saturday evening during the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, which is going on at the high school, that puppy is going to get struck. There will be 1.21 gigawatts and he can potentially get back to the future. And so the whole premise of the movie obviously is Marty knowing the future, how do I act now that I know what's going to happen on Saturday? And even part two and part three, which are far worse than part one, are based on the fact that old boy steals an almanac and he gambles and he knows he's going to win the Super Bowl and all these things, right? But the idea is, if I know the future, then I know how to respond now, right? I know how to respond now. And and what David said last week, I thought it was a, a great statement. He said, we know the future. We have a book, a supernatural book from God himself that actually tells you when the clock tower is going to get struck. Tells you what's going to happen. Not in every specific detail who's going to win the Super Bowl, but it tells you the big things. What is going to happen? And we're going to look at a passage today, a large passage, two chapters, where we're we're going to see God say something that's going to happen and it's going to happen. We're going to look at some prophecies today. Some that have already taken place, some that are yet to take place. Um, But we are going to see the clock tower get struck. And And these are some of y'all the most amazing, amazing prophecies, I think, in the scripture. They're not some like generalized, like big picture, yeah, it's going to get bad. I mean, anyone can be general. Anyone knows Phillies are going to stink, Cowboys are going to get arrested, Jerry Jones is going to get plastic surgery. Everyone knows that, okay? That's generalized. Everyone knows that. But but we're talking about specific, that was for you, Ron Hurst, wherever you are. Uh, We're talking about so specific that only God... Only God could know. And, and, and I want to kind of unpack these prophecies for you a little. So this is not the, the milk of the words. So you're going to have to stay awake a little bit this morning. I'm going to try to keep you awake. But I, I think there's some great implications for us as we study prophecy. All right. So we're going to jump in and look at these uh, and then just talk about them at the end. And I, I would probably venture that most of you, many of you have never even read these passages. We love chapters one through six, Daniel in the lion's den and the flame, you know, but not bowing down and the fiery furnace. We love those. We skip seven through 12. So this is probably new to some of us, but that's good. And so some of these things are probably going to be on fresh ears. So let's jump in and just kind of get ready and go. We're going to cover most of chapter eight and then we are going to cover chapter nine, but I'm going to hit the high points in chapter nine. Verse one of chapter eight, follow along. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. Daniel, after that, which appeared to me at the first. So this is time-wise after the last chapter, but we're still actually in the Babylonian reign, all right? Belshazzar is the king, right? He's, he's, Nebuchadnezzar is dead now, um, but Belshazzar is reigning. That means the next kingdom has not come in, and we saw the next king come in, 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 in earlier in chapter, chapter five, right? But right now, we're talking Babylonian. So he gives you the time frame. Daniel is an older man, but this is when he has a dream. And here's the dream he has. I saw a vision, and when I saw it, was in, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the, the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes, and I saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. 
I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, he became great. And then as I was considering, behold, a male goat. It's like we're at a petting zoo or something here. We got a ram, we got a goat. A male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without even touching the ground. We have an an elevating goat. And the goat had a conspicuous horn. This is not a goat in my definition. This is a unicorn. (laughs) One horn is a unicorn. So a floating unicorn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I saw standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran into him. At him at his, in his powerful wrath, so battle royale at the farm. I saw him come close to the ram. He was enraged against him, struck the ram and broke his two horns and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. Not a fun petting zoo. At, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power, right? Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns. Goes from unicorn to monster. Four horns now. One is gone. Now there's four towards the winds of heaven. Right? Then um, next verse, verse nine. I guess I skipped nine, so I have to read it in here. Great. You're making my eyes work. I can't even see my Bible anymore. (laughs) Out of the one came a little horn. Excuse me. No, I'm back in the... There it is. Then the goat became exceeding great, but when he was strong, okay, got that one. Out of them came a little horn who grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and towards the glorious land. And it grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and it trampled upon them. And it became even as great as the prince of hosts and as the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown and a host will be given over to it together with regular burnt offering because the transgression will destroy truth to the ground. And so you have this, just unpack it again. You have, you have a, a two, two-pronged, uh, not goat, ram it gets trampled by the unicorn that's floating across. The horn gets broken. Now we have four horns, okay? But out of those four horns, then one of these horns goes really big and does a lot of bad things. That's in essence what he's saying, right? And we'll kind of unpack that. And then so Daniel says, um, in verse 15, I saw the vision and I sought to understand it. Yeah, we all are. Right? We don't know what's going on. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai and called it Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. So here he is. He wants to know what in the world all this fighting at the farm's going on. And all of a sudden, there's an angel, first named angel in the Bible, kind of a biggie, right? He's, this guy, Gabriel, he's kind of got a big job in about 500 years. He's going to show up and talk to a little girl named Mary, right? But he, she, he says, here, let me tell you what's going on. So he came near, and when he came, I was frightened, because anytime you see an angel in the Bible, there's fear. He fell on his face. He said, understand, O oh son of man, the vision is for the time at the end. This is what's going to happen. This is future. Not just near future, but distant future. And when he spoke to me, I fell in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me, made me stand up, and said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the point of time at the end. He tells him twice. This is the end. Okay, we're talking about the end here, all right? So here he goes. Here's, the, here's, here's what's going on, battle royale at the petting zoo. As for the ram you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. That makes sense, right? Media and Persia. The second one was bigger than the first one. The Persian kingdom was more powerful than the Medes, all right? We know this from history. 
And we also knew that this was going to happen because we saw all these things happen earlier in the book. Right? Remember chapter 2? This is the vision that, Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar saw. He saw the head of gold. That was Babylon. What was the chest of arms and silver? The next kingdom to come along, it was the Medes and the Persians. Right? So we've seen this time and time again. But then the next thing you have, you have a next, the goat, the unicorn floating goat is the king of Greece. And, he is, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. We know that after 200 years of media and Persia ruling, guess who comes in? A certain individual named Alexander the Great. And he comes in and his army was known for its speed. Thus the goat floating, right? And he conquered the known world by the time he was 32. He was a young man, but there was a problem then. When he was 32, he died just suddenly. As for the horn that was broken, four others arose. And so he, in, in the middle of his strength, it says he, he is he's broken and he dies. So Alexander the Great dies. And what happens after Alexander the Great dies is his kingdom is split into four parts and is given to four generals. The horn that was broken in place of which are four others arose. Four kingdoms so arise out of this nation, but not with his power. So, so Alexander dies early, doesn't have a son. All the kingdom, which is huge, is given to four sons. And here's a map of kind of the, of the area that was given to him. All right, you had the areas over here. You had Thrace. You have this area here. That's something important. This is the Seleucian Empire. This is the Ptolemaic. I know if you look real close, it's in German. So don't look real close, but it was the best map I could find. <laughs> Don't look at any of that, all right? But this, this is the idea. So you had four real areas. You had the Macedonia, the Thrace, the, this is the, the solution, and this is the Ptolemaic. F people like Cleopatra. I know this is Western Civ for some of you, but this is actual history that God predicted beforehand. So this one kingdom goes to four kingdoms, and what ends up happening is this one grows real powerful, and they're always fighting. They don't, they want to, there's a power struggle. And these two are like weaklings and Rome ends up taking them over. But these two right here, the Ptolemaic and the Seleucian, they get real strong and they keep battling. And guess who's in the middle of the little battles? Who's right here? Israel. All right, right stuck, flat dag in the middle. All right, and so when they're fighting, and, at these, and it says at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgression has reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall rise. His power shall be great, but not his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he makes a seat. He does all these things. He, he goes against the Prince of Peace. He stops the temple. Earlier, it said he was going to invade to the east, to the south, and toward the beautiful land. What ends up happening after 200 years is a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes rises. He's the Seleucian king. He's a historical figure. His name originally was something else, but he changes it to Epiphanes because it means godlike or glory of God. And he actually put his face on coins and put the inscription, the glory of God underneath himself. Okay, he was not a, a humble dude. And so what he ends up doing is he hates the Ptolemaics. So he ends up invading down here and he hates the, he hates the Jews too. But he goes down here and there's a rumor that this guy Epiphanes was killed. And all the Jews are like, woo, yes, he's dead. Ding dong, which is dead. Right, they have a big celebration. Guess who shows up in Jerusalem a few weeks later? Old boy's alive and he is ticked off and he kills almost everybody in Jerusalem. And then he goes into the temple and he desecrates the entire temple. He takes a pig, he sacrifices it in the temple of God, and then he throws the guts everywhere so it's defiled so the Jews can't go in. And he gets a big statue of Zeus, and he takes out all the things that are in the temple, and he puts a big old statue of Zeus in the middle of God's temple. 
Meanwhile, he's killing everybody. And so the Jews actually called him Antiochus the Madman, a little play on his name. Because right? he hated the Jews, and so he's, he ends up trying to squash out the Jewish culture. He stops the temple worship. He, don't, he does not allow them to worship on the Sabbath anymore. He stops Jewish circumcision, everything that made them Jewish. And then he takes these, these statues of Zeus all around Israel and makes people bow down to him. And it's all there. He talks about it. He, he, he suppressed truth. He attacks the saints. He kills them. It's all right there. And then history tells us that after a couple of years of doing this, he takes, there's, a, there's an episode in a city called Modin where, where he takes the statue of Zeus up to Modin and the priest there is a guy named Matthias. And he tells Matthias, Matthias, I want you to sacrifice on this altar. And Matthias says, no, I'm not gonna do it. And one of the younger priests says, well, I'll do it. Matthias takes out his knife, kills the younger priest, kills the head dude, and says, those who are for God, follow me. It's just like the Boston Tea Party on steroids is what it is. And they run into the wilderness, him and his five sons. Matthias ends up dying soon, but he has a son named Judas Maccabeus. And his son leads the charge against the solutions in Tychus Epiphanes. And after three years of kind of guerrilla warfare, finally takes over Jerusalem again. This is like their revolution. Takes over Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, he purifies the temple. Gets Zeus out of there, gets the pig guts out of there, gets everything, goes through all the ceremonies. Problem is they only have one jar of oil for the candlestick. And that thing's supposed to be lit all the time. So they say, well, we only got one jar of oil, we'll light one jar of oil. They light one jar of oil and that thing lasts for eight days miraculously while they had to go get more oil. And now to this day, on the 25th of December, or Kislev, which is the... The, the Jewish holiday, they celebrate a feast of lights called Hanukkah because their city was freed and there was a miracle of the oil and all these things took place and God called it. Okay, and I'm, you know, that's all Western Civ 101 and some of you are like, uh, you know, fine. Good, big picture, God called it. 10.04, clock tower, Saturday night. Just like he said. You can read it, it's there. And this is why, y'all, that, that those who are of the liberal spin, they look at Daniel and they say, this is not written in 500 BC. This is written after it happened. Because they can't argue with the fact that it's so precise. It's just so precise. I mean, the equivalent, y'all, if you think about it, this is 400 years before all this happened. Very specific. This king, this king, this guy dies young, all these things. It'd be like someone in the 1600s coming over on the Mayflower. Mr. Pilgrim, with his funny hat, saying, okay, in a couple hundred years, there's going to be a, a rising nation from the Huns, and they're going to have a little horn with a funny mustache, and he's going to link up his arms with Rome, and they're going to attack the east, the north, the south, and the west, and then there's going to be a, a, a 48-state nation. There was only 48 states in the 40s, by the way. Alaska, Hawaii, after. I know my history, okay? Just so you say, I'm not 50 states, Fowler. No, I know that, Okay. A 48-state coalition comes together and attacks and conquers them and becomes the most powerful nation in the world. It's that specific that someone on the Mayflower would have called. It's a miracle. It's huge, right? It's huge. I mean, think about it. He called the media Persia, one for one. He called the, the Greeks, two for two. He called Alexander the Great, three for three. He called that he would die early, four for four. He called that 
um, that there would be four kingdoms out of him, five for five, that one of them would rise up and be more powerful, six for six, that he would attack to the north, the south, the east, and the beautiful land, seven for seven, that he would stop the temple worship, eight for eight, that he would kill the Christians, nine for nine, that the temple would one day be restored again, 10 for 10. And there's even more there. That's just a big 10 for 10. It's pretty good. Just in this little portion of scripture, 400 years before it happened. And that's nothing. That's just the first prophecy. Let me get you the second one. Because the second one, I think, is more amazing than that one. All right? Chapter 9. We're going to be moving. I know some of you are like, man, this is crazy. I've been gone for so many weeks. You, you give me four weeks off, I just cram everything into one. <laughs> Don't lose the tree in the forest. Chapter 9 starts out, and Daniel's going to pray. And we're going to come back to this a little bit in the end. But what happens, it's a couple years later, and Daniel's gonna re- Daniel gets a ha- his hands on a copy of the book of Jeremiah, who is a contemporary of Daniel. And Jeremiah in chapter 25 promises that Israel would be captive for 70 years in Babylon and then they would be restored. And it's, Daniel's like, dude, I've been here 60 years, 65 years. That means the prophecy's almost complete. That means it's, oh, we're almost going back. So he realizes that and he starts praying and confessing the sin of Israel and praying specifically that God would restore the city, the temple, the people of Israel. And so this next prophecy is really a response from God to his prayer. In verse one and two, again, he says, I was speaking and praying and confess." oh, excuse me. Uh, in the first year, Darius, so this is years later, the in the Persian Empire, by the descendant of Mede, who was made king in the first year of his reign. I, I perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass. 70 years, right? So he's, he's like, man, it's almost done. So he just starts praying. And as he's finishing up his prayer, while I was speaking and praying, verse 20, confessing my sin and the sin of my people and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill, that's Jerusalem. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, there he is again, old Gabriel shows up, who I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight. Gabriel's booking, at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you. He said, as soon as you started praying, boom, I got on it, and I'm here, and I want you to consider the word and understand the vision. All right. Here's the vision. Ready? This is fun. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing And the people, the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be a war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. For half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. That's pretty clear to me. Let's pray um, and move on. All right, let's unpack this slowly, okay? And this is, we're going to take this, this is a hard passage, y'all, so I, I, t- trust me. I'm P major guy. Yes, I went to seminary, but that doesn't mean anything because there's theologians that struggle with this. But let's just kind of take it through real slowly and just understand it as literally as we can. And I'll try to make it as clear as a PE teacher 
can do. All right? So everything hinges on this 70 weeks. He says, 70 weeks. Remember, he's praying about Jerusalem. He's praying about Israel. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people. Who are your people? The people of Israel. Who is the holy city? The holy city is Jerusalem. So he says, okay, 70 weeks. Okay, that's an amount of time, right? Everyone agree that that's an amount of time, 70 weeks. So what we have to figure out, what does 70 weeks mean? Because literally the Hebrew is not 70 weeks. It's literally 70 sevens, all right? 70 sevens. And so we're gonna do a little bit of fifth grade math today. I'm gonna help you out a little bit. But 70 sevens, how many sevens is that? 70 times seven is what? 490, you guys are geniuses. All right, so there's 490 somethings are decreed for your people. And what's gonna happen after these 490 somethings? Finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and profit. That means there's no more, everything's done, everything's finished, everything's complete to anoint a most holy place. This is kingdom language. Right? This is what the Jews have been waiting for since the beginning. The, basically, the ushering in of the kingdom. No one's sinning anymore. There's everlasting righteousness. The prophecies are all complete. So there's 490-somethings until the kingdom. Right? So what is the 490? That is the key. Right? It's one of two things. It can only be. It can either be 490 days. Right? Because a week is seven days. Or another way it's understood is it could be 490 weeks of years. It could be 490 years, right? That's a way it's used in this very passage. So, we, so you got to figure, okay, well, which one is it? I think context dictates 490 days is not enough. It's a year and a half. He's thinking in terms of years already. 70 years, this prophecy is going to be complete. We're almost there. He's already thinking in the context of years. So most theologians agree that, that he's talking about 77s of years or 490 years. The Jews, Jewish people think of things in sevens. And so it's 490 years is the idea. 490 years to bring in the kingdom, right? Or everything is wrapped up. So here's the key. So when does that time clock start, right? When's, the, when's kind of the game on, right? Well, he tells us. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's the, that's the starting point. And we'll, we'll see what happens next. The starting point is whenever somebody says, go rebuild Jerusalem with its moat and its gates and its stuff. When did that happen? Do we know? We do know. It happened in Nehemiah chapter 2. You can read about it. Nehemiah says, hey, king, can I go back and build Jerusalem? And he says, yes, you can. So he sends letters and, and, and pieces of paper to go through all the country that says, Nehemiah is allowed to rebuild the wall and to rebuild Jerusalem. That it is. And not only do we know when it happened, we have the exact date from history, not just from the Bible. It happened on Nisan 5, 444 BC. Nisan is a car and it is a calendar date. For the Hebrew, for the Jews, right? It happened on, so you can write that in a little in the, in the margin of your Bible. Nissan five. So from Nissan five four forty four, four hundred and ninety years till all this thing is. But 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 that's not exactly what it says. It actually says that from a going out to rebuild and build Jerusalem to a coming of an anointed one. Who's an anointed one? It's a Hebrew word messiah. That's a hint. It's a Messiah. Jesus. 
from a going out of that date, March 5th, 444 BC, to the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's what literally the Hebrew says. It says seven and 62. The English kind of smooths it out. But basically, seven plus 62. All right, what's, what's the answer? How smart are we? 69, you guys are geniuses, man. So 69. 69 sevens, 69 times seven. I'm not gonna trust that you know that off the top of your head. It's 483, all right, 483. So 483 years from five Nisan 444 BC. But here's, here's where it gets a little tricky. All right, it's like, as if you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> the Jewish year is different than the American year. We're on the Gregorian calendar. They're on the Hebrew calendar. Hebrew calendar is 360 days, not 365. They don't have this 30 days, past September, April, June, and November, all the rest of 31. They don't have that, okay? They don't have all that stuff. Everything's 30. 30, 30, 30, 30. It's so much easier, right? So, man, that, that throws things for a loop. Yeah, so this is what we have to do. You have to take 483 years times 360 days, right? And then you are going to get, don't, I, I know there's an engineer that probably knows that, and we all don't like you. Um, it's 173,880 days. So, let's, let's review. From 5 Nisan, 444 BC, there should be 173,880 days till a coming one, till an anointed one, till a Messiah. So, how, so and again, I'm not going to do this for you because you can go back and do the research yourself. But if you go 173,880 days from 5 Nisan, 444 BC, you end up, on 10 Nisan, 33 AD. What happened on 10 Nisan, 33 AD? It's a certain, there was a certain dude who rode in on a donkey to a big city called Jerusalem. And that people were saying, Hosanna, and people were throwing palm branches down. To the day, y'all, this is Palm Sunday. To the day. 173,880 days from the, from the signing of that back in Nehemiah to the Palm Sunday when the Messiah was presented to its people and yet he was rejected. To the day, you can't, you can't even make that up. And then what happened after that? Five days later. And, on the six, and after the 62 weeks, what happens? Anointed one shall be cut off. What's that talking about? Calvary, all right? This word for cut off, the same word Isaiah uses for the Messiah being cut off. He said, I'll have nothing. Buried in someone else's tomb even. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one should be cut off, I have nothing. Now, I know some of you are saying, I mean, you got questions. And if you have any questions about this, David Cleland at cbcsavannah.com. <laughs> I'll give you a cell number if you want it. <laughs> um, honestly, a lot of this stuff, I mean, this took, you know, kind of a lot of reading. There's a great book that I recommend for those who are the engineer type that love this. Chronological Aspects in the Life of Christ by Dr. Harold Honer. All right, you can ask me that afterwards. Harold Honer was a prophet at Dallas Seminary that everyone feared because he was like wickedly hard, but he was a sweet man. But there was a class that was an elective called Chronological Aspects of the Bible that only like three people took and they were very nerdy, right? And no one, but I just bought his book because it's a summary of his class. So it's for Caesar that way. And I don't have to get failing grades. But um, 
he summarizes a lot of this stuff, not just this, a lot of things in the Bible. Chrono, he's a, he was an expert chronologist uh, before he went home to be with the Lord. So great book if you're really into that, and I'm not. So I just read a little bit of it. But, but there, there's, a, there's a lot there. But don't miss the trees in the forest. God called it. Just like he did Greece, Persia, Alexander the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes. He called it to the day. And I know some of you are like, well, wait, wait, wait. And this is all the Gulfstream engineers out in the world. Well, there's a 70th week. You only got 69, Bill. Ah, yeah, you're the ones I have to go. Yeah, that's why I have to do the next portion. All right, you're right. There's still a week out there, 483 years. We still have seven years. What's the deal? Because if it, if it, was, if it kept going, we should be in the kingdom by now and 40 AD, but we're not in the kingdom. Right? There's, there's not an everlasting righteousness right now. There is not an end to sin. There is not an end to all these things. So what happened? He tells us. He said, the people of the prince who is to come, that's not the same prince of peace. It's a different person. It's going to destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he will make a strong covenant with many for one week. There's your last week, folks. All right, there's the 70th week. And for half the week... He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, just a little bit of math again. One more math problem. What is half of seven? Three and a half, right? So for three and a half years, there's going to be offering and sacrifice. And then for three and a half years, there's going to not be. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out. What this is referring to, this is where the prophecy ceases to be past and is now future. There's a future aspect to this. This is the little horn we talked about last week. This is the one that Paul and John in the New Testament and Jesus refer to as the Antichrist, right? Who will one day show up on the scene. He will make a covenant with the nation of Israel. He will let them rebuild their temple. He'll be all good for a couple years. And then in the middle of it, he's going to stop it at the three and a half year part, which by the way, and I can't make this up. If I was making this up, you could tell. You go to Revelation 12 and Revelation 13. Guess what it says Antichrist is gonna do? He is going to, for 1260 days, how long is that? Three and a half years by a 360 day calendar, by the way. And then he's gonna say 42 months, which is again, three and a half. And then he's gonna say a time, times, and half a time, which is time one, times two, and half a time, three and a half. I mean, it's consistent throughout. For three and a half years, he's going to do this, and then he's going to persecute the saints. It's not only in Daniel, it's in Revelation. It's all over. And it's all in that 70th week. And, and some, I know, and some of you come from a background, and, and I'll just get, I'll agree to disagree, that, you, that you've heard that there is no national Israel, and God does not have a future for the, for the people of Israel. I, I just, I heartily disagree from, from with my understanding of the, of the Scripture. Um, we are in now what is called the church age. It's as if God has called a timeout on the weeks, right? We, this is what the mystery of the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it's the mystery of the Gentile and the Jew together. And, and, you know, that was not seen. This is where we're living. But one day, timeout is going to go time in and there's going to be seven more years. And then at the end, Jesus is going to come back and rule and reign forever. And he's going to kill Satan. He's going to kill Antichrist. You can read all about that in Revelation. Go ahead, go at it. But the point is, don't don't miss the trees in the forest. God called it all. And he's been right so far. And I'm telling you, he's not going to miss anything. That's the point. He is sovereign over history. He is sovereign over creation. 
He is going to defeat Antichrist and those who resist. And it's funny that in the 1800s, no one, you know, everyone mocked anybody that believed that there would be a future for Israel. And then in the 1900s early, everyone mocked it. It was, ah, oh, you think there's going to be a future for Israel? And then in 1948, something happened. A little war. And Israel got back in their land. And they've been there ever since. And is it, do, you, do you ever wonder why anyone even cares what goes on in a little country the size of Jersey that looks about as ugly as Jersey? I mean, and what, there's nothing there. There's no oil. There's no, you know, there's no resources, no diamond mines or something. It's because it's the central point of God's plan. It always has been. The church has been grafted in with them, yes. But God still has a future for his nation. And one day, it's gonna happen. There's fighting this week. Did you see fighting on the Temple Mount this week? Did you see all about that? They wouldn't, you know, up, you know because the Muslim holy site's there and the Jewish holy site's there. One day there's gonna be peace. The temple's gonna be rebuilt and then it's gonna get exploded again. But then Jesus comes back. All right, some of you are spinning. I get it. I'm spinning. What's the point? What's the point? What's the point of prophecy? Why prophecy? Do you know that 25% of your Bible is prophecy? Some fulfilled, some not. So God put it in there for a reason. What can we get out of prophecy? Let me give you three thoughts from this text and I think that just in general, because you're gonna get some prophecy next week when we finish up the book. Um, and then when we get back into the New Testament, it's gonna be prophecy again. But what do we do? Here, here's, here's just three of my personal thoughts. It's not the only thing, but it's just kind of things that struck me as I fearfully came to this text knowing that I had to teach you it. All right, here's the first, my first point. Prophecy teaches there is nobody like our God. I mean, no one. There's no one like our God. There is no one who stands outside of time and knows everything that's going to happen from beginning to the end, from the foundation of the world. There is no one like our God. God is not surprised. He is not alarmed. He is not shaken. He knows exactly what is going to happen at exactly the time it happens before it happens. He doesn't, do you realize that God doesn't learn anything? God can't learn. He's not like, oh man, I I knew it was going to happen kind of like that, but I didn't know all the details. He, no, he doesn't learn, he doesn't discover, he just knows. He just knows. That is the God you are here to worship right now. He knows what the economy's gonna do. He knows what the market's gonna do. He knows, uh, you know, what, what the, who's gonna be this king and who's gonna be this president. He knows what the weather's gonna do. He knows how many days you're going to live before you were even born. He knows how many teardrops are going to fall from your eyes in your lifetime. He knows at any given moment how many hairs are on your head. He knows how many cells are in your body. He knows it all at all times, and he always has. There is nobody like our God. There's nobody. I mean, that's, that's the God we're worshiping. He knows the surgery that you don't know about that you're going to have to get in three years. He knows about it. He's not worried about what college you're going to end up at. He knows who you're going to marry, how many grandkids you're going to have. He knows what job you're going to have. He knows. He knows who's going to win the World Series. And we all know it's not going to be the Braves or the Phillies. He knows. He knows before you ask anything of him. He knows what you're going to ask. He knows your needs. He knows your wants. He knows your desires. He knows your cries. He knows you pouring your heart out. He knows. Right? There's no one like our God, y'all. That's, and, and that's the kind of God that I want to know. 
That's the kind of God that I want to follow. That's the kind of God I want to believe in. That's the kind of God I want to trust, especially since he says he wins. Especially since he says he wins. And, he, and here's what, and again, we could go on that, that train for a long time, but here's where this struck me this week, okay, is this, is God knows you know, those things that no one else knows about you, those hidden things that you won't even tell your spouse, those hidden things that you won't tell your buddies that you think, that you did, that you whatever. He knows all those things. He, knew, he knows even though you're faking and you're like, oh, my for He knows you had a bad week, some of you. He knows what kind of week this next week's gonna be. You know that issue that you constantly are bringing to him, that, that greed, that lust, that pride, that anger, that addiction that you're like, Lord, I just... I don't want to ever do it again. I promise I'm never going to do it again. He knows that you're going to do it again probably and he knows when and how. And here's the amazing thing about that. Even though he knows all that stuff, he is unshakable in his love towards you. I mean, if that was you, if you knew that that person was going to think that, do that, act like that, how would you? You'd be like, I'm out. I'm not even going to get to know that person. And God says, I know. I mean, he tells Peter, Peter, you've been my best bud for three years. You're going to deny me in an hour, three times. He's got, you know, start your clock, Bubba. Peter's like, no way, Jose. I love you. I'll die for you. What happens? He denies. He knows he's going to deny him, but he says, and after you deny me, wait, wait, wait. After you deny me, strengthen your brothers. He still loves him. He still cares for him. He still uses him. That is the God that we serve. There is no one, y'all, like our God. There's no one who shows grace. And the only reason, y'all, that he can do that, by the way, is because his son takes our place. And so when he, I was just praying this morning, Father, when you see me, see your son. And he says, I, oh, I will. Because that's what Jesus does. He takes our place. And now when the father looks down at us, he sees his son. There's no one like our God. That's what prophecy teaches me. And I can go on in that, but I don't have time. So I'm gonna keep going. Here's the second thing. This prophecy teaches me, it reminds me that God's word cannot fail. It will not fail. It does not fail. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away. My word never pass away. And the best hitter, I'm a, I'm a baseball guy. Best hitter of all time. You could debate. Some say Ty Cobb because he had the highest national, highest lifetime average, 366. I would say it was Ted Williams. Ted Williams, his brain is frozen somewhere in case we ever figure that technology out. I don't know. But anyway, that's not even a lie. That's true. Um, he is the last hitter to hit 400, right? I mean, that's an unbelievable in the professional baseball. To hit 400, you hit 300, you make bazillions a year. You hit 400, you're the best. He hit 400, 406, I think. That means out of 1,000 at-bats, he, he gets to hit 406 times. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. No one does that. Even if you're 300 out of 1,000. Think about this. If God was only right 406 times out of 1,000, we'd be like, you're a great baseball player. You're a lousy God. If God misses just one prophecy, just one, if he is 999 out of 1,000, we'd say that's, that's pretty good rate. He is not God because he's been wrong. And if he's wrong, he cannot be God. 
I mean, because then which, if, I, if he's wrong in one thing, then he may be wrong in a bunch of other things. And how do I trust him? How do I know that if I really put my faith in Christ, that I'm going to die one day, my body's going to go in the ground, my spirit's going to go be with him, and then one day he's going to return and he's going to bring my body out of the ground and resurrect me and I'm going to live forever? Oh, if you're wrong on this and this, how do I know that's true? Y'all, it's either all true or it's none of it's true. It can't have it, it can't have it both ways. Well, he was pretty good on Persian media, but he missed the whole... No, God's word does not fail. It is infallible. It's true. And so our response, and here's, here's what I see, and this is why it means in church. I'm not talking about just for prophecy. What I see, it's alarming to me in the church is people that think they know better than God. And, and what I mean by that is, so we'll, we'll be doing premarital counseling with a couple and saying, here, here's what God says about marriage. And, and, they, and they think in their 23-year-old, we're experts, I went to college, that they can escape uh, what God says about marriage and how, how it works and about purity. And uh, they're gonna be the one exception to everybody else. I'm just telling you. God's word, all of it's true or none of it's true when it comes to money, when it comes to contentment. And, and, and it's alarming that the church because we're so smart now, it's 2017 after all, we're so much smarter than God that we know better about things than God does. Y'all, God's word is a gift so that there is contentment and joy and comfort. God is trying to protect us. And, and when we're like, well, I don't really believe that, then you're saying God's a liar. And, and we shouldn't be surprised that the veracity of God's word is being attacked by the enemy. It has been since Genesis chapter three, when Satan goes to Eve. Did God really say that? That's not what he said. And I just wanna encourage you, when God speaks clearly on something, he's, he's, it's true. And you can take it to the bank, even if anyone else is lying. And that's, what, that's why we, in our kind of paradigm for what a follower looks like, the first thing is that S, that specs, that, that we, we submit to Scripture. Scripture says X, we follow it. It says this is sin. Some of you think, well, I can handle this little addiction. I can handle this little pornography. I can handle this little, this little whatever it is, this, this functional Savior. I can control it. I can promise you, you can control it now, and it's going to eat your lunch. And God is just trying to protect you because he loves you. God's word doesn't fail, y'all. We can trust it. We can trust it. It's timeless. It is for our good. It is, it is for our comfort and our joy. It is so that we can know our great Savior. All right? And then here's the last point. It's, so let's do what Daniel did. And what I mean by that is this. Daniel in his prayer, if you go ahead, and go, I encourage you to go ahead and read it this week. All he does is claims God promises. He says, God, you said this, so do it. God, you said this, and this actually happened. You said this, we were going to go into captivity, it did. So God, now you said you're going to restore us, restore us. It's a great model for our Christian lives. Do you realize that God loves it when you believe in him? He delights when his people take him at his word. It's, it's just a delight to him. When we say, God, you said this, so I'm going to trust you and I'm going to do this. Man, that is, he, it, he delights when you delight in him, he gives you the desires of your heart. And here's another promise that, that John tells us. We know, we have confidence that if we ask anything according to God's will, anything, that he hears us. And that we, we have the requests which we've asked for him. Doesn't mean, God, I, I believe that I'm supposed to win the lottery. No, but when you know what God's will is, and you say, God, do that, he does it. He delights to do it. 
So some of you are like, man, I don't know what college to go to. I don't know if I should take that job. Should I buy that house? Should I buy the Honda? Should I buy the Nissan? Should I? And, you're, and you're, you're looking to make decisions. And so what God tells you is, hey, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. So you just, you cast that to him. You trust in him. You don't, you know, don't try to like, you know, cast lots and like, oh, if it's, it's the Honda, it's a six. If it's a, no, you just trust him and you start moving and God promises he will get you where he wants you to be. He will. Do you believe it? He said it. Either he is true or he is a liar. You, you, some of you feel guilty because you had a bad week. And the enemy's there on your shoulder. You are a dirtball. I can't believe you would go to church and sing. And, and he's just whispering in your ear. You can either believe that or you can believe that God loves you because he demonstrated his love for you and that while you were a sinner that Christ died for you. You have a choice. All right? See how great a love the Father has for us so we should be called children of God. And such we are. What are you going to believe? This is where the promises of God are huge. You're worried. You don't know what your job's going to be. There's a, there's a big doctor's appointment, a big surgery. You got a wayward child. Whatever it is, you're hoping the kid gets a scholarship, your kid just got injured. There's trouble in your marriage, trouble with your parents, trouble with whatever. And God says, hey, cast that on me. I can, I, I can carry it. I care for you. Cast all your anxiety on me. All of it. I got it. You going to try to figure it out or are you going to do that? Either he can carry it or he can't. Either he's lying or he's not. You hate your job. Feels like it's endless. Feels like it's pointless. Feels like you won out. Feels like you need a change. You just, but you can't get out. Feels like it's just not, it's not really impacting anything. But Paul says, you are serving the Lord Christ. So whatever you do, do, do all for the glory of God. Wordy. He gives value to that. You gonna believe that? Or are you gonna sit there, oh, this job's useless, I don't really, uh. it, it just comes down to God's people believing what God has said. That's all. I got on a plane last week and the pilot said, hey, we're we gonna go up to 35,000 feet or two weeks ago and, and it's gonna be a little rough on the way up but we're gonna get to smooth air. And I was like, I hate rough air. Can we just like stay on the runway all the way to Atlanta? You know, just get on 95 on the plane, you know? It's fine. <laughs> so we go up and sure enough, man, it gets up. And then five minutes later, man, I believed him. We weren't gonna crash. We're fine. Comfort. That's what God's saying. Test, test me in this. Give me money. Test me. Be generous, test me. Love your neighbor. Some of you are like, I can't love my neighbor. God says he wants you to love your neighbor. So if you ask him for strength to love your neighbor, guess what? He's gonna help you love your neighbor. Why? Because it's his will. To forgive that person that you're like, I can't forgive that person. God says he wants you to forgive. If you're, Lord, I I don't feel like forgiving, but if, please just help me to forgive. He will enable you. Why? Because it's his will. Because he keeps his word. He has to, he's God. If he doesn't, he's gonna topple off his throne of holiness. That's, that is the God we serve. All right. That's a few small lessons from me. There's more. But just remember this. There is no one like our God. His word is eternal. And he wants us to believe it, claim it, know it, follow it. Because he called it. 1004, clock tower, 1.21 gigawatts. Right? Let me pray and we'll worship. Father, thank you for your word. And this is heavy, and I know 
Um, I don't expect everyone to remember every detail, but if they come away trusting in the beauty of your word and your truth and knowing that you are a great big God who cares and loves for them, man, that's, that's a win. We know that you are sovereign over all, even, even trouble, you're sovereign over that. You promise, it's another great promise that, that you work all things together for good for those who love you. We don't like the, the, the trouble in that, but we certainly like the good. And so I pray whatever is going on in the circumstances of our hearts and our lives right now, that you would bring good, like you said. I pray uh, for your church, just Lord, if nothing else, that we worship a, a large, great, big God who loves us, Lord, that we would be passionate about him and then leave excited about what you have for our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen.